on today's story beat. Any artist, any any creator must trust that voice inside. Your first reaction when you come up with an idea for something is to say, "Oh, that couldn't be any good." I mean, I just thought of that. That's not in any books that I didn't see. It. That's my idea. Who am I? I'm nothing. I think every artist has to trust that thing. And and yes, if it's wrong, then you'll learn. But you have to listen to that inner voice and go with it. This is Story Beat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Story Beat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, if you're like me, you're already a fan of my guest today, John Davidson, who's one of the most extraordinarily gifted entertainers of this or any era. John's probably best known for hosting the TV shows The Hollywood Squares, That's Incredible, and as the guest host of The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson some 80 times more than any other singer. John has also hosted his own daytime talk show, many beauty pageants, the Tom Jones Summer Replacement Series, as well as the Craft Summer Music Hall, with regular performers no less than George Carlin, Flip Wilson, and Richard Pryor. As an actor, John has appeared in dozens of TV shows, including The Streets of San Francisco, Fantasy Island, and The Love Boat. And he starred opposite Sally Field in the TV series The Girl with Something Extra. You'll also know him from the Disney films The Happiest Millionaire and the one and only genuine original family band. He can also be seen in Airport 80, Edward Scissorhands, and The Squeeze. But it was John's performances in the major showrooms of Las Vegas that established him as one of America's foremost entertainers. If you have the opportunity, you must see him live. Over 50 years ago, John made his Broadway debut in Foxy, starring the legendary Burt Lahr. Later, John would star in State Fair and win a Theater Guild Award for playing Curly in the Broadway revival of Oklahoma. As well, John played the Wizard in the Broadway musical Wicked. He's also toured the U.S. in multiple Broadway musicals. And he's released 13 albums on the Columbia Records label. John and his wife Rhonda created the geography card game Borderline USA. He's also written a book and a play, and most recently he's been entertaining America as a troubadour, singer, songwriter, storyteller with his original songs, his jokes, his guitar, and his backup singers, the Inflatables. We've got to hear more about that soon. For more, please visit johndavidson.com. And so for all those reasons and many more, I'm deeply honored and greatly delighted to have as my guest on Story Beat today, the exceptional comedian, author, actor, musician, TV host, singer, and entertainer, the great John Davidson to Story Beat today. John, welcome to the show. Oh, Steve, I can't stand it. That, that's the, be- that's the best uh, introduction I've ever had, I swear. It's, it, it's, it took me it's 55 all- years in showbiz to get an introduction like that. that wow. Thank you. Wow, I'm you know I'm going into the introduction hall of fame. That's what's happening. <laughs> and so, it's all it's all it's all true. It's just a little glorified. I mean, I'm just a guy just trying to 
save his butt and uh and thankful to have had so many good jobs you are more than just a guy um you know i've been following your career for a very long time and and uh it's exceptional what you've done is really truly ex exceptional i i do want to go back to your roots you you grew up where i am you're not here right now but you grew up where i am at the moment which is in pittsburgh pennsylvania or you or you were born here at least yes yeah i i was uh that's what it says on my passport uh, Mercy Hospital. Oh, that's Mercy where I was born. Oh, God. Same hospital. <laughs> Maybe we had the same nurse. I, I doubt it was the same year. Um, uh, but uh, it's because uh, my folks lived in Warren, PA, yes. uh, up to the north. And uh, we came into Pittsburgh, where my grandmother lived, so that my mother could have her mother's help in, in having this baby seven days after Pearl Harbor, this is December 13th, 1941. Wow. And uh, of course, the war had just started. And here came this little uh, dimpled, uh, overly cute uh, baby. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody was thinking about the war. And I, I kind of snuck in or snuck out, I guess. But yeah, I, I consider my roots to be Pittsburgh. Then we would go back to Pittsburgh a lot over the years to to. Uh, to visit my my grandmother and in those days pittsburgh was a pretty dirty city oh I mean, filthy filthy remember from the, oh, the coal when, when i was growing up here because i grew up here but I, I spent 40 years away from here but but when i was growing up it was the end of the steel industry and it was yeah. filthy here it was you could cut the air with a knife i think i said coal i guess it was steel of course uh but then later i had some of my best shows out at the holiday house oh, in sure. monroe monroeville mm-hmm uh, and uh, oh, all of us, uh, Tony Orlando and and uh, oh Ben Vereen, uh, uh, Bobby Vinton, we would all play Holiday House, and and uh, then it mysteriously burned down one night. It it, <laughs> it did mysteriously is <laughs> yeah right. It is correct. You know, I happen to see. I'm I'm not going to get too far off track here, but I am still mem remembering. I saw the Three Stooges at the Holiday House in oh. like 1960. <laughs> Oh, can you believe that? The Three Stooges. The Three Stooges. That was that Tony Orlando, Engelbert Humperdinck, and John Davidson. Yeah, that... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. I'm just curious. You you didn't actually uh, go to school and grow up here, correct? You grew up elsewhere. No. Yeah, uh, we were living in Warren then, and then I, I mean, I I lived with with my grandmother there, and my mother and I, because my dad uh, went away to war. My dad was in World War II, so we. We would stay with my my grandmother a lot, and my uncle and cousins uh, lived across the street. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure I forgot what street it was on or what area. It's probably changed a lot, but uh, I, I have a very fond memory of uh, it. Going back to Pittsburgh, people used to say John, John. They would <laughs> they would say my hi John, and uh, so that was the pick. Pittsburgh accent. I, I love that Western Pennsylvania accent. And then I, when I, I but my, my family kept moving and, and uh, we wound up when I was in high school in White Plains, New York, a suburb of New York. And I graduated from there and then went to Denison University in Granville, Ohio. So that was still the Midwest and not far from Pittsburgh. And you were a theater major there. Yes. I was. I was a philosophy major for the first uh, for the my sophomore year and the beginning of my junior. Yeah, I was. A, and then I met theater people and uh, really got excited about the students that were 
that were uh, theatrical and, and uh, into the theater. And I'm, finally, I'm, always, I'm always curious, people that have had success in the business, how important was schooling, do you think, to your career? Did, you, did it give you a foundation? I think it gives you a foundation in being a person and being a father and being a better husband and, and, being, and, and being more curious about life. You, you learn more what the options are. And, and uh, even though you don't learn everything, you learn how to learn we had a great library at Denison that uh, is where I got excited about reading because I was not a reader until mm -hmm. after college. But uh, my grades weren't that good. My mother had gone to Denison, so she called and kind of got me in. <laughs> but I think if I hadn't been a theater arts major, I probably wouldn't have graduated. My grades, even at Denison, were not that good. I, uh, I haven't been the best student. I love to go down and sing in the music department uh, rehearsal rooms. And mm -hmm. uh, I just love singing. And uh, I started using my guitar that I had learned how to play in high school, sang with another guy named Dusty Rhodes, Dwayne Rhodes. And we had a kind of a folk duo. Uh, he played a, a small guitar and I had a regular size. And we were not Everly Brothers, but we did harmonies and stuff and sang at some events. and. I, even though I love theater, uh, I, I, my favorite thing, I must say, is always singing with my guitar. And that, that's, so I'm, and I've come full circle. Now that, that's what I'm doing now. But I've, I've, I went from Denison to Broadway and uh, got lucky right off the bat uh, in New York. I stuck out like a sore thumb because I was from the Midwest and mm -hmm. very clean cut. Well, so when did you start singing? Did you, know, did you sing from a, being a little boy? Uh, I was a very shy kid, and uh, my mother had me sing. Uh, probably the first time I sang was at a church in Maine. I sang uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, sing of the glory and the glory forever. And I, I, my voice cracked on the last note. And I, oh, I'll never forget it. Uh, our Father who is art in heaven. Uh, so singing in church was my first time. My, my, both my parents were ordained ministers. I, I'm not religious at all, but uh, I think people assume that I was more religious than I was, but uh, I was a preacher's kid. And so singing in church was probably my first time, my first uh, time singing. My mother sang. Uh, my dad was not theatrical at all, except being a preacher, but it was my mother who was the great storyteller. And, and uh, I think she got me into voice lessons in high school. And so, yeah, I studied a little voice and then, of course, studied voice at Denison. But then I, my really great teachers were in New York City. Well, so, I'm, you know, you have a and always have had a very natural, fluid ability to be in front of a crowd. You're you're just easy is what I would say about you. You're just it, you're just a natural in front of a crowd. Did you get that from your mom? Yeah. Uh, at an early age, uh, there would be a lot of. Um, uh, because I was a preacher's kid, I was put on display all through high school. Right. You know, uh, and so there'd be a lot of, uh, of get togethers at, in our home. And uh, I, I was supposed to be, I was on parade. I was paraded out as this wholesome and clean kid and, and uh, Mr. Perfect. And uh, uh, gee, I wish my son were like you and all that. And um, so, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was put on parade in a, a minister's home all through high school. And so I grew up probably a little bit, uh, you know, like the Osmonds uh, in that I was 
having to deal with adults all through my my teenage years and mm -hmm. having yeah well and you've you've always had what one would call a wholesome image it's not uh it's not an a weird quirky or offbeat image it's it's always been kind of wholesome and i think that that, that comes from your midwest roots as well yeah yeah i i think uh I think I, I, I'm, I'm not as wholesome as people think, but, uh, but that's okay. I've, because I've, I've looked the way I look. Which, I have, which, is, which is good looking guy, yeah? Well, it, uh, open faced. There's nothing, I don't think there's any mystery about me or any, I, I haven't shown my dark side. I, I, of course, I can be many things, but, but the side that I've played on is a smiling, happy-go-lucky guy. Mm -hmm. and, and those are the parts that came my way. And that's how people perceived me. I mean, I don't look like Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. Right. And so people saw me as a guy who was trouble-free, who probably always should play parts where the guy gets the girl in the end. And uh, so that's how my career kind of developed. And I I use that. We all use our looks to, I think, the way you are perceived. Uh, I, I played on that and uh, and was able to get jobs because of that. And I very, very rarely rocked the boat uh, and because I wasn't offered uh, offbeat parts of drug dealers or drug users, you know. Right. You offered the clean, the, the clean, uh, you know, yeah. clean parts. It, 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 was that something that you then exploited and developed? In other words, did you actually push that as something that was your career or did that get pushed on you? Well, I didn't, I didn't have to push it. It was just there. Um, that's what seemed to work. Uh, I learned early on that when I choose songs that are passionate I'm going to love you till the stars fall down. I'm, right. I'm going to, I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be a winner. That's what I enjoyed doing because that's what people enjoyed me doing. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I, the, I, you know, Tony Bennett was better at singing uh, crying in your beer songs. Like uh, uh, what, who can I turn to when nobody needs me and all that. I, I, I didn't feel right singing those songs where the guy was a loser. So most of my material, in, in, especially in the early stage, was very positive. I, I find that I'm, I can move people, I can touch people more if I'm positive, even, even if it's a sad song. So uh, I guess that's limiting, but every career is limited in some way. And, sure, sure. And uh, it's it's been great so but i but i have used that in my career my my look my my approach my my conservative family background it wasn't until i started meeting theater people that i discovered there was a whole other world out there and that's that's what attracts me to the theater because you meet all different types of people sure sure so you know i all of the time that I've known you, which is a good part of my life, um, uh, you know, from watching you on TV and so on, um, I've always admired your your singing voice, which is exquisite. I mean, you have a beautiful singing voice. And did you know early on that you were a good singer? Was it? Did you know when you were in college at that point that you were good at it? No, um, because I wasn't. Um, I've studied breathing a lot, and I think it's my Broadway roots that have kept my voice. I'm singing now in my show as well as I've ever sung. Uh, wow. Yeah. I, because of breathing and because of having that Broadway background, um, I, 
I've experimented with other types of sounds of, of little gravelly or a little more edgy or whatever. But I keep coming back to that, to, to, to trying to make as nice a sound as possible and, and be a singer. Don't, don't be a screamer or a shouter. I, I can identify with a guy like Tom Jones, for example, who has said, Tom Jones says he stood out in the 60s with all these other rockers because even though he had soul, Tom Jones was a singer, always has been, and Absolutely. he's still singing, still singing great today. Well, I think it's amazing that Tom Jones and Engelbert were able to have hit records and sing well during a time in the 60s when so many rockers were having hit records by not really thinking about singing. They were just yelling and, and, and doing that. So I've been more of that, but I, I haven't spent enough time in the studio, in the recording studio. I've never worked on records enough. I Yeah, I've made 12 albums, but they're and they're pretty i'm proud of them but i've never had that one hit record i think because I, i've um i'm not a song stylist i i'm i'm a song interpreter but i've never had a unique sound which comes i think i don't know what what, what, don't, what, what do you what do you look for the for the listeners that don't know what is the difference between a stylist and an interpreter what, what are those differences <laughs> well that's thank you steve that's a good question um <laughs> a, a stylist is someone who, because of some quirk or thing in his voice or the way his, his uh, sinuses are placed or the, <laughs> the, the, the shape of his mouth or the size of his tongue. Sinatra is a stylist. Well, Sinatra is both. Um, he's a great interpreter of lyric. There's no question about that. But he's has a distinct style that's all his. Nobody else does Sinatra. Am I right? Right. Well, people try to, but yeah, you're right. Um, so, not, of course, the the progression is Jolson, Bing Crosby, Sinatra in, in uh, American pop singers. Al Jolson was our first pop singer, and then uh, Bing Crosby, because of the microphone, started crooning, and so that was the next stage. So everybody tried to be like, bah, 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 like. Bing Crosby. And then Sinatra said, no, you've got to speak the words just as you speak, but sustain them so that you hold words longer, but you speak the words right up mm -hmm. on the front of your face. And that's, that's Sinatra. And uh, you add Brooklyn to that and, and uh, yeah, that helps. But uh, <laughs> it does. But I, I was trained in college to, to, be, to do musicals, to be Curly in Oklahoma, to be uh, Don Quixote in, in Man of La Mancha to be Billy Bigelow in Carousel. So I never thought about how would John Davidson sing? What is my style? My style was whatever the Broadway show required. I see. And, and so I don't think I have a unique sound. I think I'm more of an, inter an interpreter of material. Oh, but I, may, I, may I beg to differ in this way? If I heard a song that you were singing, I'd know it was you. You I don't think so. Oh, I, I don't do. think so. You, you think you think you're just like everybody else? Is that what you're saying? You're just in the middle of the road? No, I'm a guy who tries to support the sound. I try to sing from his diaphragm and open his mouth. And I try to sing easily and not to squeeze it out. And um, I try to free up my voice so it's usable to play any emotion or any story that I'm telling. Mm -hmm. That's but, really that's really key, isn't it? That you're able to you are able to to move in different directions. It isn't one thing. That's right. But if but if I 
if I just sung one way, I might have had a hit record. Is that a regret? Do you regret that? A little, a little, yeah. Uh, I think that's the one area in my career where I should have worked hard. I mean, Engelbert has Please Release Me. Tom Jones has It's Not Unusual and Delilah. Uh, t- uh, t- t- um, Tony Orlando has Tie Yellow Ribbon. They just, that just came out of them. And I was too busy trying to learn how to sing a perfect tone, a, a generically perfect thing, instead of having a style. So mm-hmm. uh, I should have yeah, spent hours in the studio saying, now what, of, of all the many sounds that I can make, which one matches this look and is John Davidson? I never worked on that. So, all right. So when you have gone into the studio, you, I assume you were involved in the selection of the songs that you, you no. recorded. No, other no. people, other people picked them for you. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> so, so, so you don't, you didn't have a choice in, well, I like this song versus that song. You just sang what you were told to sing. I had a little choice, but I started off with Columbia records and Columbia, their theory was, Here's John Davidson singing the hits of 72. I don't know why. They did it with Andy Williams and Johnny Mathis and Percy Faith and Goulet. But but I I, I guess they have their individual sounds. I I see what you mean. Yeah, I guess I sound like John Davidson. But the Columbia Records said, these are the hits of this year. We want you to sing the hits. So I did all covers of other people's hits. And I never, I very rarely got a new song, went into the studio and said, now, how would John Davidson do this? I was singing the songs as well as I could sing them. And you know what I mean? It's a different approach to a career. Well, sure. If you're, if you're singing uh, mostly or all covers, it's pretty hard to then have a hit with a cover, although it happens, but it's, it's rarer than if you have an original piece. Well, when you do your your act now or when you've done it in vegas did you select the the programming of the songs was it you yes oh yeah oh yeah by that time i began to realize that this is the type of material i want to do and i began writing songs i i uh I, i've now written 20 25 songs and and i use a lot of them in my in my live show mm-hmm. more and more i've as i got up into my 30s i began to to find, discover myself and discover what sort of stories I wanted to tell. And I think that's when I really started uh, being a, a better storyteller, better interpreter. And those, those the, the Vegas years were, in, in my 20s, I was uh, a Broadway guy. And then in the 30s, I played Las Vegas a lot and, and had the records and the television. And so you, I began to, to, to sort of make my own way. You were, mm-hmm. you were interpreting at that point yourself rather than other people. So it, yeah. it, it probably felt even more natural to you at that point. Yeah. But I wonder why someone would buy a Kenny Rogers song sung by John Davidson his way. Why not hear Kenny Rogers do it? Well, <laughs> but, I mean, well, well yeah, of course. I, of course. That makes sense. Looking back, it was is outrageous. But that's, that's the way my career went. I, I started by... And when I would guest, guest host The Tonight Show, I would come out and sing two songs instead of doing the monologue. And I would sing other people's records. It's, you, you, uh, you have to, I, my theory was people want to hear the hits. They want to hear the big show. I had my, I took over from Mike Douglas in the daytime. So I had that for two years. And I would do at least a couple of the hits of the day, my way. Um, and 
And in Vegas, in Vegas, by and large, the crowd back then wanted to hear the hits of the day, and I didn't have any. And so I did everybody else's big record. And, and then I began to develop my relationship with the audience and, and really had a very good act that, that I think made people come back and see me because I, I became an entertainer. I consider myself a singing entertainer. I think uh, that's, that's as accurate as it gets. That's, that's dead on. Yeah. What, okay, so I ask lots of guests this question, which is, what for you, in your point of view, what makes a good song good? What, what does this song have that appeals to you and that you say, okay, this is something that I can sing, want to sing, and represents my feelings and who I am? I think art in general is not just in the creation. It's in the reception. Mm -hmm. Art has to be received appreciated and you art has to move somebody who hears it or sees it if it doesn't do that then the artist is just playing with himself and it's not enough it's it's just not enough for me um there are some paintings where i think the guy's just being self-indulgent you know so let him go do that in a closet but if you, <laughs> if, if you want to move, I like moving people to laughter, inspiration, tears, uh, passion. I, I like to have someone hear me and have an epiphany, have a wow moment and say, oh, I never heard that put quite that way. It, it has to touch people. I've always said, especially my opening number in any performance must have the word you in it. Mm. If I come out and it just has I in it, you know, I've got rhythm, I've got music, whatever. I want the performer to touch me. Yes, I want the performer to, to say what he wants to say and to express himself, but it has to touch my life, the way I feel, the problems I'm having, the challenges I'm having, the joy that I'm feeling. It, that has to come through. Otherwise, to, in my mind, art is nothing. So, so the songs that you select are very much rooted in passion, in, in the feelings and guts, not in intellect of any kind. I, I've taught my students for a long time. We don't, we're not in the intellectual business. We're not in the academic business. We're in the passion business. That's what I think you're saying. Am I, am I right? I think so. I think so. That's, there, there are sweet songs that I, that I have done uh, that, that have no passion. And um I stopped doing it. It just, just what? Why? They're just a, they're just a pretty thing. But uh, were they I, a grind? Were they a grind for you to sing? Were they? No, no, because there are other things you can work on, on, on singing easily and beautifully, and and uh, to sing as pure as you can and make a nice vocal sound and and work on breathing. Try to hold the phrase as as long as as necessary or as long as you want. What would you say are the most important things you've learned from your years of performing live in front of audiences? What, what would you say are the, the fundamental lessons that you've learned over time? Well, Sammy Davis says in his book, it doesn't matter what you're saying if they don't care. So at the age of three, I think Sammy Davis started realizing that you have to give them a reason to care about you and to care about what you're singing. So you do it in the setup, you do it in the way you, you perform it. You do it in looking them in the eye. You're always singing to one person. Don't sing to a thousand people. You mm -hmm. sing to one person. Great lesson. 
Yeah. Same, same thing with writing. You want to write to a person or maybe a small group of people, but always to one thing is what you want to write to, not to try to write to millions. Yeah, sure, sure. You've got to, you've got to move organs. Uh, a guy named John Stewart, who was uh, one of the uh, Kingston trio for a while, he wrote uh, many songs. But John Stewart came to my show. I was playing the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. And he said, yeah, it's nice, but you're not moving organs. <laughs> That's a great phrase. You're yeah. not moving. You're not, you're, yeah. If it's not punching you in the gut somehow, it's yeah. not, it's not doing it. So yeah. I, I'm curious when you're preparing for a show, a gig, what do you do? Do you have a, a ritual that you go through in the days prior to a, a performance or series of performances? Do you work on your breathing more or what is it you work on? Well, of course, your, your whole body has to be ready to sing. You've got to try to stay in shape. As I get older, it gets harder, but uh, you've got to, your whole body has to ring. You, your your uh, tool is your body. So it means don't drink too much, don't eat too much, <laughs> get enough sleep, drink a lot of water, all that, that stuff. But I, I, th I think a big factor is you can never know the material too well. Make sure that you know that material so well that it just is second nature to you. Mm -hmm. I, I have had times when I just didn't know the stuff well enough. And um, I think a lot of performers need to make sure that they, you know, someone once said, in, in order to learn how to do something, you've got to do it 10,000 times. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, there's a, there, you have a marvelous clip that you have on your website uh, from when you went up on lyrics on the Tonight Show, oh, and, yes. and that was that was handled. Ex you handled extremely, extremely well. And of course, Johnny gets you, zings you at the very, very end of it. But was there was that a panic moment for you, or how did you handle? It? Where you just looked like it was, yeah, we've I've screwed it up, and we're just going to go on. You make it look so easy. That's what I'm marveling at. Well, that uh, it, it was a musical version of Rudyard Kipling's If, if you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Right. And I had done that as the closer in my show for five or six years. And at that moment, I was thinking about having to go over and talk to Johnny on, on the couch after I sang. And I lost my concentration in the song because I knew it too well. So I, I got sloppy. I, I got, I was, I was not focused. I was not thinking enough about the material. The material will save you. Anybody says, oh, I get so nervous in front of a crowd or in front of a board meeting or in front of a, whenever I have to get up and speak, get into the material that it's, if you get into that material, that's what you should be thinking. Don't think about anything else, but what you're trying to communicate, you, you will not have a trouble. And that night I was not thinking about Rudyard Kipling's if, I was thinking about my interview with Johnny, which was to come. And I was just, it was a, a train wreck. And, uh, but I did, I saved it well. You did, the, you saved it greatly. Somebody, somebody said to me once that I'm at my best when things don't go perfectly. Mm -hmm. I had a manager once said, oh, that was a perfect show, but we would have cared more if you'd screwed up. <laughs> so, um, I, well, well, Carson was famous for having his best monologues when the jokes were bombing and how sure. he would play off the bomb. And, sure. and, and that's sort of what you're talking about, the same thing. But you didn't bomb. You just went up on lyrics and started over, which was, uh, you know. Yeah. But again, it's, it, many people would have collapsed and folded at that moment and been 
you know, in terror, but you looked like it, we were having a good time anyway. Is, were you well, conscious of that? Uh, it's a good point. Part of it was that Johnny really liked me. I felt that. I felt his support. I knew he was with me. Fred DeCordova, the producer, was very supportive. And I knew I was among friends and that this happens to everybody. And I don't know. My way when I get in trouble is, is to start smiling, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is just such a cop-out. If, if you see me smiling uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but the, we'd rather see someone like you smiling than frowning or getting upset. So I, I think you're doing the, the right thing. Uh, it, it seems to me that it's, it's just in your nature. Were you always that way? Did you start out, you were always a happy-go-lucky person? Or is this a, something that you consciously put on? I don't know. I don't know. I just, when I, it's when you. I get in trouble, I start, I start laughing because it's just so... I don't know. I, again, I was very shy. It was it was being in the theater, playing the the role of the song or the role of the part in the in the musical or the play that sure. that helped me to not be shy. Because I guess my my self esteem uh, may seem like it's enough, but I I often don't have enough self esteem, and so I think of John Davidson as a role. And I actually made it when I first started doing this in the mid 60s, I made a list of the things that John Davidson was as a separate person. <laughs> wow. Because when I did those things, I was OK and people would want to see me. And, but why should they see an ass who's jealous, petty, mad, petulant, whatever? So, yeah, I... I um, I, well, I, it worked pretty well for Don Rickles, but that was his specific act, wasn't it? That's true. That's true. That was a, that was an act. He was the sweetest guy. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. The, if you watched him for any length of time, you knew that he was actually a really sweet guy. But that was the act. Uh, you, you, so I'm fascinated by the fact that you created a character named John Davidson. Yeah. That that. that um, but you you know in in life, you just seem that way. I don't think you can get up on stage and do as many hostings as you did and fake who your personality is. I think that comes through. But it's, it's not fake. It's just that we, we all are many things. Uh, we, we all are, well, many different things. So you, you tend to go, you just choose from those things what you're going to use. And uh, this is true if you're an IBM executive or a, or a talk show host as you are, you're, you're not revealing to us all the things that Steve is. You're you're picking and choosing, and, oh, and you're oh, God. God help us if I did. Right, right. <laughs> we all do that. Cheerlead, cheerleaders do that uh, when they're bouncing their pom poms. They that that isn't what they're like all the time. And so we all do that to to tell stories and and to relate to whoever wants to hear us. Yeah. Well, you, you've uh, clearly worked with m many of the giants of the business. And um, I, I assume that you learned some of that from them as well, that they, that what some of what the, you know, various greats of the day, Johnny for one, the Richard Pryors and so on, uh, that there is something about how they approached the business so that the audience respected them or liked them or laughed at them <laughs> how they wanted. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, I, 
I am a stealer. I am a, I've stolen not, not just lines, although I have stolen some jokes from people, <laughs> but I, I steal attitudes and, and audience relationships and uh, points of view from most everyone I've ever worked with. When I started hosting the Hollywood Squares, I was doing Peter Marshall, but I don't do impressions well, so nobody knew it. <laughs> uh, when, I did the, when I did the Music Man, I was doing Robert Preston. Uh, and then gradually, I, you know, when I started hosting The Tonight Show, I, I was try trying to fill Johnny's shoes and, and taking on attitudes that he did. You begin to realize, of course, that you have to buy your own shoes. You, you have to get, <laughs> yeah. get your own shoes. But, uh, oh, uh, I, I could go down the list. I, I, um, What's the greatest I, lesson you think you learned from any really successful, famous person that you've worked with? Because you've worked with a ton of them. Um, would you say there's one that stands out as the, like, that's the real lesson of how it all works? I, I don't know, Steve. What is the one thing? There I, could be more than one. I'm just curious if there's something yeah, that stands out for you. I, I think to, to have love and compassion in everything you do, even when you're doing a joke that that is somewhat unkind there's got to be a kindness to it you know uh, betty white uh, she, she had a uh, a thing underneath that smile and that sweet thing you you betty white had that twinkle in her eye oh was, yes oh yes it was a, a little dirty a little naughty uh, but 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 through it was that great love that came through um oh well but, she she plays very well against what is perceived as her sweetness Exactly. And that works exactly. really super, just superior when she does it. So, all right. So I'm curious about, we've talked a little bit about hosting. Um, was, was being a, a host something you had thought about as you were coming up in the business or did it just sort of happen for you? Well, I started as wanting to be a, a Broadway leading man. And right. uh, in my first Broadway show, a guy named Bob Banner, uh, the television producer, Bob Banner, who's gone now, um, he had discovered Carol Burnett uh, five years before and, and put her on the Gary Moore show and then the entertainers. And he brought me on the entertainers. So he wanted to find a, he wanted to develop a television host who could do it all, who was a singer, actor, comedian, a uh, little bit of dance and do, uh, do, do a Las Vegas act and be a total performer, not, not just a recording star. So we didn't work enough on recording. Um, he said to me, uh, I don't want you to be just a, a spear. I want you to be a pitchfork. <laughs> in, in, he said, I want you to be a Swiss army knife instead of just a blade. Uh, so, so we worked on all, he said, this is what the greats have done. This is what the Bob Hopes and the Sinatra and the Lucille Balls and the, and the Carol Burnett's and the, I could go down the list, but they, and he was referring to older performers. So, uh, he helped me find who John Davidson is and, and how I would be as a host. So he started honing me as a variety show host. And I remember saying to him, no, no, I, I just want to play Curly in Oklahoma. And then I, I want to play Matt, the boy in the Fantastics. And eventually I want to play El Gallo, the narrator in the Fantastics. And then I, I want to play Billy Bigelow in Carousel and do but he said, no, no, you've got to figure out who John Davidson is 
and play that character. So that's when I began making lists of who John Davidson is and, and making those choices. Uh, that's different from the career. Let, let's take a Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter did one thing. Brilliantly. Brilliantly. Tony Bennett did one thing. Johnny Mathis makes an incredible sound. He doesn't try to tap dance. He doesn't try to be a Shakespearean actor. He makes that sound as Tony Bennett does. So I try, I've always tried to be a Swiss Army knife. And, and so it's, it's gotten uh, watered down maybe, and it's gotten confused. And, but uh, that's, that's, that's what my career, that, that's the difference of what a John Davidson is, as opposed to those artists. And, and so, that, so in a sense, that notion of Swiss Army knife, that was contrived by Bob Banner to, to yeah. fit you into that mold? Definitely, definitely. He pulled me away from, he pulled me away from just, just trying to be a leading man on Broadway. Right. So, so, all right. So then what kind, aside from sitting down and making a list of who John Davidson is or, or would be, um, how, what did he develop with you that's, that you now needed to have in your arsenal to be a, a, a good host was it to develop your your comedy chops uh, that ha so that you could operate under fire under stress when things weren't going well we worked on telling jokes yeah he taught me how to 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 we worked on comedy material yeah he had comedy material written for me he would hire people and then advance me money and then i'd pay him back he taught me to study the comedians that were opening for me uh jay leno used to open for me in vegas and reno and uh, I, I, he taught me how to study, not to steal those jokes from Norm Crosby or Kip Adada or other people from Joan Rivers open for me. Mm. Uh, uh, watch them from sides to see what it is, see what it takes, see where the pauses are, see what it takes to tell a joke well. And so I picked up a lot of attitudes from, from people like that I'm still doing some things that I picked up from Joan Rivers. Um, I'm still doing uh, things that Jay Leno taught me. And, and, um, and then I found my own stuff, but. Uh, is, is a lot of it timing? Is it how a joke lays out and then times out? Yeah. Yeah. It's performing live. There's nothing like performing live. When I, when I speak to, young people's groups about, you know, how to have a career in show business. I say, perform at the drop of a hat. If somebody says there's a, there's a fashion show that needs a host, or there's a, there's a ladies luncheon group that wants a couple of songs and maybe to talk about uh, your life or do it. Well, but I've never done that. So what? Get up and do it. But, but perform a lot. There's nothing like performing in front of an audience. They will teach you timing. Because if you step on a laugh or if you don't wait long enough to set things up, they won't get it. So you need to perform live. The basis to all theater is, of course, live performance sure, way before television, way before recording of television. You know, people were performing on the back of wagons. Well, 2,700 uh, years back to the Greeks. Yeah. Yeah. It, so live it, theater is the key to everything. 
So, so, all right. So how long do you think it took you to develop where you were comfortable doing that? Was it pretty fast or did it take a while? (laughs) You're still doing it. (laughs) I'm still working on it. I'm I'm 79. I'm going to be 80 in December. And I still haven't done my best show. And, I, my best show is coming up. I'm so, still... so this 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 episode will be released as they all are audio only, and people aren't seeing you the way I'm seeing you, and you sure don't look eighty. That's for sure. Oh, of course I do. This is what eighty looks like. Oh. It's just it's just that I have my hair. I have hair. I I am <laughs> I'm like an uh, an albino chia pet. My, my, my hair my hair just just keeps growing. An well, albino you've got, you've chia got, pet. <laughs> I, I could see you. You've got great hair, too. Oh, well, thank but, you. Uh, we're, we're just lucky. We've got hair, you know? I mean, yeah. not everybody uh, that, that gets past the age of 40 has hair. So I mean, yeah. it's a, a really excellent thing. Um, so, so there's nothing that you do in particular to, to prepare to be comedic, light, and funny. It's just doing a lot of it. I think as you get past 30, I think you begin to realize how we ridiculous life is and and that's what comedy (laughs) is is saying this is outrageously ridiculous this life that we lead i mean that's what george carlin was playing on it's just how ridiculous the things we do and and uh that's what got me to 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 question everything why 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 do we do that do you write your own material now for your act yeah, mostly. Mostly. Yeah. So you don't hire anybody to help you out with the writing. You you put it all together. Oh, I, I, I've tried that. I've paid writers to give me stuff, but I usually rework it and make it my own. I I, I used to go through the Milton Berle joke book and then make make the jokes my own. Um, uh, yes, I yes still but do... he, he stole all the jokes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. That was the whole act, is that he stole yeah. other people's jokes. Yeah, but if you... You make them your own, by the way you do it, and uh, um, you, you. But you can learn a lot by just reading, reading jokes in a book. Yeah. When you say reading them, you mean reading them out loud, not just reading them. Well, that's a good point too. Yeah, reading them out loud. I, I, I meant reading, but you're right. Reading them out loud is even better. Well, it's it, it's one thing to read it; it's another thing to actually bring it from your brain through your mouth. That's another story entirely, isn't it? Exactly. Good point. So I want to talk for just a moment about acting because that is where you're, you really started out what you really wanted to do. Um, and it's been a little while, I assume, since you've been on Broadway. Yeah, it's been a number of years. Well, actually, uh, recently, I mean, uh, five years ago, uh, four years ago, I did uh, for a year, I was the wizard in Wicked in the national tour of Wicked. I played the wizard. How fun uh, was that? Uh it was great. The trouble with the wizard, of course, in, in, in Wicked is that you sit off stage for an hour and 15 minutes while the witches tell their story. It's really yes. all about the witches. Yes. And, yeah. And they, they talk about you. We're going to see the wizard. We're going to see the wizard. Well, the wizard is sitting in his dressing room playing his guitar, uh, just reading and, and trying to pass the time because it's, the wizard is only in Wicked exactly 16 minutes wow wow all right this is a great question then because this is one of the things i really find fascinating you've done plenty of tours and most of the tours you've done i assume you've been the star where you're on stage a lot but uh, in this case where you weren't uh, was this 
how challenging is it to, you know, you're on the road, you're not at home. So you're out of your, you know, your comfort zone, which would happen in a tour. And yet you have to perform for those 16 minutes. Was there anything special mentally that you would do psychologically to, to prepare for those performances so that each one of them was special in some way? Well, yeah, it, in, in a, in a Broadway show, you've got to make it happen for the first time eight times a week. Mm-hmm. But it would drive me crazy. I mean, I, th- then um, mo- most recently, I did a little over a year touring in, in uh, Finding Neverland. It right. was the, uh, of course, the star of the show is William Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. But I, in Finding Neverland, I, it was a duel. I, you play the producer, Charles Froman, and then you play uh, Captain Hook for about 20 minutes in a dream sequence. But yeah, I would rather be on stage all the time. I hate it being off stage. Um, <laughs> I want to be out there. I'm, I'm a, I'm a racehorse trained to run. And uh, you, you yeah. love, you love the spotlight. That is clear, clearly obvious. Well, sure. Sure. Well, some people run from the spotlight. Most, most people are scared to death to do that, but you, you take to it. Like, as they say, a duck to water. I mean, it's just, it's who you are. Well, but one of the things I like about it is that it's a little scary. It's you're taking a chance. You take a chance every time you, and that's what I like. It's the train wreck quality. A train wreck could happen at any moment. And that's what I love about live theater and live performing. What, what You've obviously also worked with plenty of directors. I always like to ask actors um, what it is that they've learned from directors over time. What kind of direction do you like to get while you're, you know, in rehearsal and, and preparing? I like a director who, who tells me how he sees it and then lets me find it on my own. Uh, I think a director should be uh, strong, and but uh, uh, you, you've got to leave something up to the actor to make the moments work. Uh, there have been times when, when I have not been able to make the moments work and, and the director wasn't able to help me and I was just terrible. Uh, I, one of my problems with acting is that about 80% of the time, uh, I, in my career, I've been pretending. And what it, acting really feels great when you're not acting at all. It's, it's being. Being. Yep, so true. But I think if you, yeah. if you, if you study the great actors, the, the Robert Duvalls, the Al Pacinos, the De Niro's, and those folks that are notoriously yeah. great actors, they all say that that's very rare when it happens for them. It is. Oh, I'm glad they say that. I didn't know that. You've talked to more people than I. Uh, I I'm glad to hear that because they look like they're being it, but the, the thrill of acting is what it really feels like those are your own words you you know the dialogue so well and again you got to know really know the material but and it feels like these words I don't, I don't know why that came to me but i just told you that i love you and, and it just came out of me uh it, that's when acting is a thrill but you're right so much of it you're pretending and and uh, that's an awful feeling well, so it's, that, it, it's, it's that, that goal that most actors have is to be in the moment. That's a big deal to yeah. be in that moment. Yeah, it's hard. It's is, hard. Is that, does that bleed through into your singing where you're in the moment in a song? Sure, sure. Yeah, and when you're not, it's hard. It, okay. It's hard to hit the high note when there's no passion in it. You need air and passion and joy to, to, to sing well. It has to come from 
you being in the moment, as they say. Yeah. So you're, you're, you know, you're still at it. You say you're going to be turning 80 shortly, which is, you know, just awesome. And, but you also now have your own little club where you live in New Hampshire. Yes. Oh, I do, Steve. It's my dream. I, I, I live in Sandwich, New Hampshire, and I found a barn, a small barn in the center of Sandwich, New Hampshire. It's in, it's in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. And because it's, it's a venue and it's in Sandwich, I'm calling it Club Sandwich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just the greatest name. So it's John Davidson's Club Sandwich in Sandwich, New Hampshire. You can go online to johndavidson.com and you'll see Club Sandwich. Um, it only holds about 40 people, but I have a rear projection screen behind me. So I can be walking through the woods. I can be at the beach at Portsmouth. I can, I can be riding a horse, whatever. But um, I can make the background anything or I can make it nothing. I can make it brick and, or just trees or, or a fabric or some sort of texture. But uh, I, I love having that, uh, having a real set for, for just a nightclub, really. I'm also presenting other singer-songwriters on Wednesday and Thursday nights, but every Friday and Saturday, starting uh, the last weekend in June and going until Halloween, I'm going to be performing every Friday and Saturday, 7 o'clock, doing uh, a different show almost every night. I've I've got a different set list every night. I've got so much. Well, I got so much material from Las Vegas and, and television specials and and, and, it's, uh, and it's just you a solo act there's no other there's not even other musicians or anything right no i'm i'm a troubadour i'm playing the guitar and uh i have a tambourine on my left foot but uh i i'm doing uh it's a one-man show and the people that i'm presenting are also singer-songwriter troubadours uh, people who play guitar and sing so mm. it's a very it's a very personal presentation no one in the audience is more than 20 feet away and they're sitting in couches and love seats. Wow. So, so it's so, overstuffed seating. So it's very intimate. Very intimate. Yep. And with COVID, that's a challenge. We've had to wait um, uh, until COVID dies down. I wanted to open in, in the end of May or June, but we pushed it back. I, I opened the last weekend in June and those shows are sold out. That, that weekend is totally sold out. And the, my first show, July 2nd, is already sold out. So it's, it's small enough that, uh, I mean, that's an intimate experience that you can't have anywhere else. No, it's, good it, goodness, no. I mean, I can't think of anyone yeah. else who does what you're talking about, which is, uh, yeah. you know, I hope someday I can take a trip up there and see you, see you live. That would be ex- exceptional. That's yes. that would be. We're, we're uh, an hour and 45 minutes from uh, Boston. And... Uh, so we're close to Meredith, New Hampshire. We're an hour and 20 minutes from Portland, uh, Maine. And, but yeah, we're, we're in the middle of New Hampshire. Uh, I, I've lived here for four or five years, and I just love New Hampshire. I, I grew up in New England after I was born in Pittsburgh. Yes. And then we moved to uh, Massachusetts. And I really, my first years, and until I was 14, I lived in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts. So. Well, I have been speaking for almost an hour to this, just to me, uh, just a 
one of the greatest entertainers ever, John Davidson. Last question for you today, John. Do you, you've already given us tons of tips and thoughts about how to be in the business of show, as they say. Um, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for someone who maybe is just breaking in or maybe they're in a little bit, but trying to get to that next level? What, what's a good tip or piece of advice for them? Well, I think a big factor is any artist, any, any creator must trust that voice inside. Your first, your first reaction when you come up with an idea for something is to say, oh, that couldn't be any good. I mean, I just thought of that. That's not in any books. That, that, I didn't see it. That's my idea. Who am I? I'm nothing. I'm, I'm a jerk. I think every artist has to trust that thing. And, and yes, if it's wrong, then you'll learn. But you have to listen to that inner voice and go with it. Do your gut feeling. And yeah, you may, you may find that, that you made a mistake. So that's the greatest thing that can happen. Learn from that mistake. But you must trust that voice inside of you. Even if it sounds even if it's, even if it sounds weird to you, but if you really think that is right, do it, man. Do it. That is so so excellent. You know, George Bernard Shaw, who wasn't a, a pretty fair writer himself, uh, he said, "A man who makes no mistakes makes nothing at all," and right. that's what it is. You have to fail a little bit in order to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Got to trust yourself. A absolutely well john davidson this has been one of the great thrills for me is to spend an hour chatting with you about your life your career and how you get there uh, and i can't thank you enough for uh, being on the show with me today it's just been a terrific hour thanks Stephen. you're really good at this you were made to do this guy this is you are you are in in the pocket in in the uh in the in the groove it's I just great I, I believe my day has just been made. <laughs> Thank All right, you, thanks. John. Call me anytime. Let's do it again. Okay, thanks. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Story Beat episodes to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.